Hey, Bethel Cleveland listeners. We just want to remind you that we've launched a brand new show called the Steve Witt Podcast. Each week, join Steve Witt as he goes further into the word and he offers his unique perspective on the things going on around the world. You don't want to miss this, so check it out. Search Bethel Cleveland on Apple or Spotify Podcasts. Enjoy. Welcome to Bethel Cleveland's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information on this podcast or how to get connected, go to BethelCleveland.com. All right. Well, let's dig into the Word today. We are going to dig into the Word series. And today I'm, I'm talking about wisdom and favor. There's somebody in the front who's excited about that. I'm going to address the rest of you in just a minute, okay? So I want to talk about how there's a difference between growing in wisdom and favor and growing in our ability to access his benefits. Now, hear me out. When some of us see a message about the favor of God, I'm not trying to call you out, but I will. You see favor and you go, prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. People are going to talk about how, Bob and Susan are like, that's not us. What are you talking about? But some people, when they hear that, maybe not you, you've all been delivered and you're ready to receive all the blessings, but some people, they hear the word favor and they think, oh, prosperity gospel. You're going to tell me that the Lord wants to give me a million dollars and that I'm going to be rich and do all these things. And, you know, I know it sounds, to hear yourself, by the way, that sounds pretty terrible, right? Like who wouldn't want God to bless you with those things, right? But I'm not talking about that. And others, looks like the majority of the rest of us sitting here today, you'll say, oh, I want more favor in my life. I've got promises from God to realize and bills to pay. So Lord, Lord God, make me a millionaire that I may bless others. (laughs) But you see, all those responses when you hear the word favor And I won't even get started on wisdom because everyone just heard favor. Both those responses are centered around our ability to access the benefits of following Jesus. But his favor towards us is not the gaining of his benefits, but the posture of his heart towards you. Sometimes the favor of God has been cheapened, right? It's been watered down to mean material gain or success. Now, don't get me wrong, I've got plenty of scriptural references that can prove that his benefits will lead to riches or success. Have you read the book of Proverbs? It says over and over and over again how wisdom outweighs the value of gold, silver, Bitcoin. I mean, that might not be in the scriptures, but it does. Look at Solomon, the richest man that maybe we've ever known about in history, his riches were so extravagant that leaders from all over the world would come to hear about his wisdom, right? Because the culture of wisdom that he built invited wealth and wealth beyond anyone's imagination, so much so that the queen of Sheba came just so that she could experience what Solomon carried. So does his favor bring material increase? Yes, it does. But... Jesus also said in Matthew 10, 34. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about favor and, you know, the the thought that, oh, God's going to bless me and give me all these incredible things. Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. 
Does that sound like something Jesus would say? Does that sound like something Jesus would say in your, in your modern 21st century politically correct culture? He didn't come to bring peace? What? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men? What? what? Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to turn a man against his father and a daughter against his, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Okay, so before some of the daughter-in-law or mother-in-laws get excited about that, it says, and a person, you could say, it was the Lord. He said he'd do it, and he did it. That's why we are at odds with each other. That's not what he means. And a person's enemy will be members of his own household. He said, the one who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He didn't say, and the one who does not receive my favor and become a millionaire. Is, it doesn't say that. It says the one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. I hear some of you in your head. Jay, this doesn't sound like the message of freedom and favor that I was expecting. Encourage me now. There is a difference between his favor and his benefits. And I'm going to say it again. His favor towards us is not the gaining of his benefits, but the posture of his heart towards us. Let me list off some of the benefits that are part of our inheritance as his children and that we're meant to pursue. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 103. If it's on your app, that works for me too. Quick, sword drill, go. Psalm 103. Does anybody remember what a sword drill is? <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> I told that to my kids the other day and Max thought it was like a sword whips out and hits. They don't even know what that means anymore because of apps. <sighs> All right, Psalm 103. When you're there, tell me, I don't know, hallelujah. There we go, good. It says in verse one, praise the Lord my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. These are the benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases and redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? Did you hear that? People of God should have youth that's renewed, right? We don't age the same as those in the world. Our youth is renewed by the promises of God. So if you're walking around and you're wondering why you're at a certain age and you look younger than the other people your age, you're not just trying to flatter yourself. It is the presence of God on your life, renewing you like eagles. Flight. I like that benefit. God, I claim it. This is not in my notes, but I just wanted to share with you. There's some kind of weird thing happen in worship communities. So you get around all these artists. I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel over the past couple of year, uh, two years and be able to write with a lot of people in, all, in a few different states. And when you get into the room, you're with these incredible artists and these amazing musicians and they play. And my first thought getting exposed to this world was like, I was like, what was I doing at 21? What was I doing with my life? They're so talented. Look at how they've invested in themselves. And I'm thinking about, I should have been like Eben. I should have been 19 and have like three cars and 
than all this stuff. And then you get to know them and you, ta- and you, and you talk to them and then they let you in on the secret. This, they're in their late 30s and their 40s, some of them in their 50s, but they all look like they're 22. <laughs> Presence of God. There's something about worship that revitalizes us. I believe in the body, and maybe I can't prove it yet in science, but I believe in the decades to come, if we were to dig into it, the presence of God really does renew our youth because it's what it says in the word, and the word doesn't return void. So this is a promise that you can lay a hold of today is that the Lord is renewing your youth like the wings of eagles in the arms. Oh, no. That's Sarah McLaughlin, sorry. Um, Hop down to uh, verse nine. I love this part. It says, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. I'm gonna say that again. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. I don't know about you. I don't want what I deserve. I want the unmerited favor and grace of the Lord. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Going on in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord will have compassion on those who fear him. Listen to this. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. He remembers when he reached down into that earth and shaped that man. I picture it like sand, like on the beach, shaping man. And when we woke up, he remembers where we came from. The greatest benefit that we could receive from him isn't riches, fame, or notoriety. To be honest, all of those things need to be put to death right here at the altar. They need to torch up because there's only one name that's going to get glory for the rest of history, and it is Jesus. He is the only one who is worthy. He is the one that the angels have surrounded the throne from from the whatever concept of time you want to hop in forever. He's been worshiped and praised. So our goals can't be in line with something so temporary or self-focused when all of heaven and all of nature orients around his majesty. He's the one who is worthy of it. He's worthy of it all. So the greatest benefit is his grace and his unmerited favor. I want to talk to you briefly about I've heard this term in my head, so if you've read it before, if you've seen it somewhere else, well, it probably subconsciously was there. But I'm going to say that I made it up. There is a disease uh, that's infected Western Christianity. And the only way that I can describe it is it's spiritual narcissism. It's a Christianity that's not centered around the surrender of our life to his or the pursuit of his glorious self or the willingness, the willingness to adjust any other area of our life to be more like him, that we would put others first, that we would start to hear what Jesus was talking about in the inside, upside down kingdom, inside out, upside down kingdom. That we would focus in and become that. Spiritual narcissism is like a consumer Christianity. It's one that really struts around and really ardently believes, like truly believes that this is not a front, this is not a hope. They actually believe in their heart of hearts that my, my desires, what I want, is heaven's highest priority. That the circumstances around me will all serve my hopes and desires 
because I am favored. I want you to know when I was writing these notes, I was super uncomfortable because I was just rewriting what the Lord. I said, you really want to say all that? (laughs) He said, yes. Narcissistic Christianity, it gives us a, a, a very accommodating Jesus. Am I living in sin? That's okay. You're loved and his grace is sufficient. What is sin? You know, it's really funny that we are talking about this because when I was growing up in the assembly of God, we talked about this and it was as plain as the nose on your face what sin was, but people are forgetting what it is. The word of God makes it clear. The word actually means to miss the mark. It's anything that falls short of God's will and his ways. Now, narcissistic Christianity allows you to live in sexual sin, for example, because, hey, Jesus made you. He knows your dust and he knows where you're coming from. You're forgiven. His grace is enough. Are you confused? Not sure which gender you are. Well, God made you that way. He made you to be confused about your gender. It's real quiet in here. Not sure if you being in a gay lifestyle is Jesus approved? No worries. He made you this way. And besides, you're the highest priority. Jesus just wants you to be happy. And isn't the highest form of evil taking away the happiness of others? So make sure you skip all the sin stuff. Don't talk about that. Pitch God is the greatest dose of feel good in your life and you'll see people flock to your church. Then they start to ask ask questions like this because once you, the narcissistic Christianity takes its full course, I'm taking you on a journey of the thought process of where it starts and where it ends, okay? They start to ask questions. Does hell really exist? Does God lack compassion? No, narcissists have trouble with this because if happiness is God's highest value for you, then hell doesn't really make any sense, does it? And after all, how can God be merciful if there's an eternal judgment awaiting you and you're just really trying to do your best, right? Trying to live a good life. Maybe hell isn't what we think it is. Maybe God would never really send anyone there. So let's redefine and reframe the gospel in the right modern language and interpretation. Because these people who wrote it down, they were living in a different culture and we've, we've got to adjust. The crowds love it. They're going to flock to it and we're going to feel validated with our hair and the warm glow of their affirmation because it feels right. So it has to be right, right? Think about that. Scripture says that there is a way that seems right to man, but its way ends in death. So I could close my eyes. Well, I could, I don't know, I'm trying to look at something kind of lethal in the room and I don't find anything, we're too safe. I could jump on top of the drum cage or something, blind, and then walk forward and try to head, head spin down into the ground or something, something lethal to myself. And it might feel right as rain, but then when I feel a thud and a crunch and I open my eyes and I'm looking at the pearly white gates... It probably wasn't the right thing to do, even though it felt right to me, right? There is a way that seems right to a man that ends in death. And so narcissistic Christianity says, you should live by your feelings. Live your faith by your feelings. That makes sense. God wants you to feel it. 
Why would he ask you to be in a relationship that doesn't give instant gratification and emotional payout right away? Why would he ask you for that? Couldn't be that he has a process to grow, develop you, and prosper you. Then we reach the cross, the most powerful act of love the universe has ever known. The moment, I want you to close your eyes for a second and picture this, the moment where the Son of God was stretched across those branches. Because too often when we picture this, we let it become commonplace or the latest precious moments pick or movie you've seen. But picture him there with his last breath. You're taking a breath now. Release it. He says, it is finished. Do you realize that that last breath, that Jesus did that? That was his last breath. And his heart stopped beating and he died. And three days later in the tomb, I I try to imagine myself in that place, the smell, the darkness, stone everywhere, and the silence, nothing living in that cave. And then in the morning of the third day, all of a sudden, a heart starts to beat. Breath stirs in the lungs. The stone rolls away, and Jesus emerges victorious over sin and death. But this becomes unnecessary to talk about if there is no hell. What did Jesus save us from? And then he's just deduced to an example where people pick their favorite scriptures to prove their points. Man, if I have one more liberal come up to me and say, Jay, even Jesus turned over tables when he was angry. (laughs) People begin to say, who have walked with the Lord, who are down this path of spiritual narcissism, now they've questioned the goodness of God and his grace, and now they're questioning hell. Now they're getting deeper. Do you see where this route is taking us? Begin, they begin to say, I'm not sure, I've heard this, about the white man Jesus who died on a cross to save us from our sins. First of all, Jesus wasn't white, he was Jewish. Spiritual narcissism takes you away from Jesus and inevitably leads you on a focus of self-actualization. And you start to say things like, discovering myself has led me to such freedom. I do what I want and it feels so good and there's no consequences. How many of you are in credit card debt ever in your life? (laughs) Didn't it feel like that? No consequences. No consequences. I'll take that and that. No consequences. Woo! And then you get to the end of it and you get that statement and you're like, oh, oh shoot, this is like 40% interest. I build a noose of which I cannot escape from. I am paying the interest and it's hard. And now the Chase Freedom card doesn't look like freedom. It looks like captivity. I'm not speaking from experience. I am. There is a, there is a balance that is racked up. There are consequences to our actions, right? And the way that we live our life. Sin, it says in Romans 6.23, what are the wages of sin? It's death. Sin is not just something that you did that made God mad at you. It is something he tells us to run away from because it will destroy your life and kill you in the end. Now, I'm gonna shock you again. We're not, I'm not talking like a spiritual narcissist Christianity. And you know, I'm, I'm thinking this whole time, like, I hope no one makes a reel of this. <laughs> talking about, you know, all that blatant theology that is terrible. Um, 
I do love deconstruction. Um, but right now, deconstruction, like Pastor Steve message, mentioned in his message last week, so many people who have tasted God's ridiculously amazing presence, they walk away and they say, this is amazing. I have questions that couldn't be answered. Is God intimidated by the questions? Well, no, he's not. Questions are encouraged. He's not intimidated if you have things to work out with him. He's got nothing to hide from you. I think we forget sometimes that we were dust, right? We're made from the dirt. Does he owe us an explanation? Does he owe us, owe us anything? But he's already given us everything. It's how he designed us. He wants to be sought out. He wants you to find the deeper meaning. He takes joy in the pursuit, but what I don't understand is why does deconstruction mean a disconnection from the Father? From praying and asking questions and using the word of God as a source to finding others who agree with you that Christianity is a farce and God's not real. And talking to those people and their journey of just forgetting about what, what the Lord planted in them. So many of us, we have that person that you're thinking about in your mind right now, don't you? The person that you're thinking about who's deconstructed their faith and walked away. And I wanna tell you something that they may have forgotten. There are seeds in their hearts, baby. There is no way that they are gonna get away from that. You, if you raise it and train up a child in the ways of the Lord, what happens when they get old? They won't depart from it. So there are things that you have laid, words and promises you've spoken over them, conversations that you had that maybe feel like they're not getting any headway right now. But I'm here to tell you, those are seeds in their heart. And this deconstruction stuff, we know the God with the uh, instruction manual, the owner's manual, who can put it back together for them. Come on. Has anybody heard of Lee Strobel? Strobel? I think I said his name right. He wrote The Case for Christ, basically synonymous with Christian apologetics, and he did deconstruction right. Does anybody remember what he did? If you read the articles and interviews from him, he, he says that he got so mad when his wife got saved. He said that he felt like she had fallen in love with another man. <laughs> And all this devotion and connection to this other guy, he was resentful. He felt like Jesus was like stealing his, his, his honey or something. So instead of writing her off, walking out, he decided, I'm going to prove this wrong. I'm going to prove it wrong that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Shouldn't be so hard. This is before Da Vinci Code and all that stuff. He dug into the evidence of Jesus' death and resurrection. You, and, and see what he did right there. He didn't dig into his doubts. He didn't dig into his feelings of separation. He didn't call up that friend who walked away from the Lord six years ago and say, hey, I think I'm going through the same thing. I'm just not feeling the Lord. And they said, well, of course you're not, because he's not real. And then you're like, oh, you're so right. You're confirming everything. I need to make a, a step forward. Oh, and then all of a sudden, in that brief conversation, you've decided to throw away the most priceless pearl that the, Lord, that the universe verse that Jesus ever gave you, which is the revelation that Jesus is Lord. So Lee, he dug into the evidence and he spent two years digging into all multiple sources, not just the Bible, but other accounts. And he, and he said that after looking through all of these hardcore facts over this two-year journey, he said after the avalanche of evidence, those are his words, 
he decided it took more faith to be an atheist than a Christian because the evidence was incontrovertible. So deconstruction, the difference between deconstruction and, I don't know, reconstruction, what do you want to call it? Like strengthening, fortifying the barracks? <laughs> the difference between those two is that deconstruction digs into yourself. And that is so limited. Do you know everything? I mean, you probably thought you did when you were 15. Right? And then inevitably you make that switch into adulthood and you start to get some self-awareness and everything. You know, the biggest indicator for me when I realized that I was no longer a child was um, my daughter was watching The Little Mermaid. And do you remember that scene where Ariel comes up to her dad and she says, I'm 16 years old. I'm not a child anymore. <laughs> when you're a kid, you think, yeah, I'm not, you're grown, you can drive, you're 16. But the adult switch is when you watch that with your kids and you realize like, yes, you are, young lady, go back to your cave right now. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, that's how Jay's brain works. But deconstruction digs into yourself. That's limited. We don't know everything. But real faith and digging into the questions, that if you have them, which I know you do, every human does, we can't look at each other in left and right and say we haven't had a question about God. We're literally praying and engaging with him when a lot of the time we don't see him. I don't know how many of you had open-eyed visions, but there's usually not a huge percentage of people who have had them before. Faith exists when you can't see it. So deconstruction digs into you, but the building of your faith digs into the Father, talks to him, and digs into the information that you have questions about. You got questions about the goodness of God? Start with scripture and then work your way out. Promise you, you will find him. See, deconstruction only works if you have the spirit of God beside you partnering with you as you dig into the hard thoughts. But you know, most dig into the doubt than the actual questions. So then what happens is, we'll, we'll go back into the narcissism trajectory right here, getting locked in. They'll feel affirmed and then shocked at how amazing life feels when you don't have to press through in faith anymore, when you don't have to do all these spiritual disciplines, when you discard all that old ancient stuff and now you're focused on the stuff that really matters, me. Ugh. <laughs> oh. Doesn't that feel good? Of course it does. You're focused on yourself. Who doesn't want to live a life of doing whatever you feel like, however you feel like doing it, where there's no right or wrong and just wants to do whatever you feel? But I don't know about you, but if you looked on the news lately or watched anything about the nature of humanity, there is some crazy stuff people do that they think is normal. We can even skip all the weird stuff and all the terrible stuff like the, the murderers and the people who violate people. You can go just to, to strange people. There was someone on TV last year who eats deodorant for a snack. People do things really weird. There is weird stuff that we do. We, we need God. So pleasing yourself, I don't know about you, but I don't always do the things that are best for me. Do you? Do you, do you are you happy with every decision that you've made in a moment of passion? Probably not, right? When you do what is impulsive, when you do what 
feels, that, that means that your feelings, which are meant to be passengers in your life, have taken the wheel, and those things are erratic, man. You'll be excited and happy when something goes your way the next, and then moping the failed crash of your life the next day, and then up and down on the roller coaster ride of life, when Jesus made you to live in consistency with him. But if he's not there, it is just you. What a scary thought. I love you, but I'd be scared too. You get to the end of this. Solomon even talks about this. Remember, he had all the riches that the world could offer. He, every indulgence, nothing held back. He did whatever he wanted. I don't know to go into details, but if you'd like to know more, go dig in the word for that because it's very interesting. After experiencing all the world had to offer, he came to a point of realizing that all is vanity. You read that in Ecclesiastes. Pleasures and joys of this life can't sustain a spirit that's built for more. It starts to ring hollow when people realize that once they've attained this dream or gotten this rich, it didn't satisfy me. I need purpose. I need a purpose greater than myself. But if we've deconstructed and destroyed our faith and made it irrecognizable to us, sometimes it's hard to realize that the structure that we built of our faith is restored the moment we fix our gaze on him. What if the word of God isn't a list of edicts, but a roadmap that protects us from sin that will destroy us? What if the sin and degradation of humanity's fallen and deplorable nature was covered in the sacrifice of God's perfect and holy son? Look around the world today and tell me that evil does not exist. We see the world ravaged by impulses and passion of violent men and women. Real love, that's where we're landing, where we're pivoting out of narcissism, out of narcissistic Christianity. And real love doesn't look like silence. Real love compels us to preach the gospel. And the gospel means good news, right? But we can't communicate the enormity of what God has done if we leave out the fact that we were lost and in sin and on our way to hell before him and that God knew that we wouldn't be able to hit the mark, he knew we wouldn't be able to meet the standards so that before the foundations of the earth, he had a plan. That's why when they talk about Jesus in scripture, it says that before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. It was always heaven's plan to create the ability for the bridge between heaven and earth to be restored that was broken, that the chasm that was created when men decided to sin and separate from the Lord. But that bridge was always planned and God knew what he was doing and he knew what he was doing in you. So real love doesn't compel us to be quiet and not offend people and only tell them the part of salvation that maybe maybe God is just going to make your life better. Will he make your life better? You better believe it. But that is not all that he gave us. We don't just want a savior. We need a savior. We need Jesus. And in a culture that worships itself, that worships getting whatever you want, how you want it, and walking in power and being empowered with yourself, we're, we're seduced by even fantasy and stories about magic that has power that we can control. We love that because it's always been the lure of humanity is that we want to have the power that God has. We want to be able to do things like he does. But the problem is that we weren't built for that. We were built to need God. 
We were built to be loved and adored by him and in relationship with him. And I've got, I've got news for you. Outside of him, we don't even exist. But yet we have so many people and sometimes even ourselves walk around this life and we think, God really have to show up big in my life for me to believe. As if the evidence of your body wasn't enough, of the world around you wasn't enough. As if his story, which he makes plain in his word to you about what he's done for you, that love letter. Because I'll tell you what, when you stand before Jesus one day, you're not gonna get to say that, oh, I wasn't really interested in that book. You should have tried a different way. The living word has been given to you as a gift. But nobody really digs into that when they're afraid or they have questions. They dig into themselves. They think about, what am I gonna do to help me? Real love doesn't focus on sin alone either. I know we've all been to that church that love to talk about sin. It preaches a message that calls us higher and invites us to be free from sin. And this is, this is the thought that I had years and years ago I was at the altar, I was praying to the Lord, and when I was 13, that's when I started having my power encounters with the Lord, you know, where the Holy Spirit would visit me and i just, you know, cry a lot and experience him. I remember telling him, God, there's, there's nothing, no behavior, no lifestyle, nothing that I want, that I wanna keep if it means I can't have you. If there's anything, any desire in my heart that's gonna separate me from you, it doesn't even matter if, if I'm tempted by it, which, reminder, you're not defined by what tempts you. But if, if you're standing before the Lord and you're looking at him and his, his, his glorious self, then there is nothing that you want more than that. And any kind of pitiful small thing that we might be missing out on or, or wanting in our life looks really pathetic when you actually look at him and you think, I want that. And so we're willing to surrender. His favor towards us is not gaining of his benefits, but the posture of his heart towards us. And so how do we grow in wisdom and favor with God, where do we even start? The word tells us. It's in Proverbs, it tells us over and over again. And as a songwriter, I have lots of voice memos. I'm not showing you this one. <laughs> but the song uh, that, that popped into my mind when I was asking the Lord about wisdom, I was just kind of walking around the house and I heard this melody came into my head and it says, the fear of the Lord it's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of wisdom is having respect and reverence for who he is. You know, he's the architect who imagined and made everything. We can't exist without him. 
I felt like the Lord told me to put this in, so if it's wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I don't know if I can share this. Hold on. Does anybody know who Olaf is? I do not recommend Frozen 2. I do not recommend it. I did a pre-watch to see if my kids could watch it. And I was emotional at that part, if you know what I'm talking about. But there's a part where Elsa, the ice queen, is taken out. And when she does, Olaf floats away and disappears because he couldn't exist without that. We are that to God. We were formed in his imagination. And when he spoke us out, we exist in the resonance, the reverberating tones of his voice. That's what we exist in. That's what we move and have our being in. So we've got to stop this nonsense of thinking that we can do life without him. We've got to stop this nonsense that says, it's okay if the person on my left and my right doesn't know him. It's okay if my neighbors don't know I'm a follower of the Lord. It's okay if, if I'm just walking around in, in my own self and not concerned about the people around me when they're all things that the Lord spoke to. They're all words he's spoken and breathed into. So the fear of the Lord is when we recognize that apart from him, we don't exist, right? Think about that. If you thought that walking away from the Lord today would mean that you'd disappear into a black hole of nothingness, I bet you'd be running to him, right? <laughs> the best way that I can describe this is, I'm coming in for a landing, so Joe, if I can get you up here, my man because we're gonna have to cut this down a little bit or do a part two. When you look at somebody who's rescued you, it changes the way that you see them, doesn't it? Hmm. There is a, another movie reference. I'm sorry, I don't know what I was thinking in this sermon prep. There's all these movie references peppered throughout here. But do you all remember the movie Taken? Everyone's like, yes. <laughs> Haunted my fears every time my kid's taken an overseas trip. What would have, how do you think that the relationship between her and her dad would have been if the movie Taken, you went to the theater, you sat down, and she really wanted to go to Europe, and he didn't want to let her go, but then he decided to let her go, and he paid for it. Gave her a credit card, and it's about 20 minutes of her eating in restaurants in Paris and using dad's plastic to buy some cool clothes. And then she gets back on the plane and goes, thanks dad, what a great trip. I'm gonna forgive the broken, fractured relationship between you and my mom because you gave me this great thing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, dad. <laughs> but as we know, his daughter is abducted and he slays hundreds of men. <laughs> to get her back. And when you get to that last scene and he kicks that door down and he takes out the last bad guy, she looks at him and she says, you came for me. You came for me. She was sure that she was lost forever. A statistic that her life was over. And at the moment where her life was about to be ended and put on a trajectory that maybe would never stop, the door kicked down. And there was her dad 
who broke through every boundary and wall. And she said, you came for me. That is what Jesus has done for you. That's what he does. He kicks down the doors. He gets through all the crowds. And when he bursts the door open, when we encounter him, when we have that revelation that you came for me, your relationship with him is never the same. And as long as you look at God as a meal ticket, it'll never be the full expression of who he is. But if you look at him as the rescuer, the savior, who saved you not only from sin and death and yourself, but saved you for a purpose to be loved and adored and to, to be infused with his life. You break through and you look at him and you recognize that Jesus broke through hell's worst for you and you realize that he's dangerous. That's the fear of the Lord right there. It says in Proverbs 8, 35, in the Passion Translation, the fountain of life pours into you every time that you find me. And this is the secret of growing in the delight and favor of the Lord. That's wisdom personified, but Jesus is the spirit of wisdom, so it's Jesus talking to you. So if you want to grow in the delight and favor of the Lord, you look for him. You don't let questions or doubt inhibit you from finding him. And you allow faith to be your compass to guide you into a fuller revelation of who he is. His favor, it's not material gain. It's him. It is how much freedom he has to express himself to you and how much freedom he has to give you more of himself. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force his favor to meet its full expression in you. And our lives are just so packed. There's always room for what matters. There's not room for what matters, but only what is urgent. So God wants to increase the favor and wisdom in your life. But I have a question for you today. Have we made the space for it? Have we made the room for it? Have we made the room for the Lord to fill us? Have we given ourselves quiet time with him to be able to hear what he is saying? Do we look for him so that he can pour the fountain of life into us? Because so often the blessings and presence and favor and wisdom of God is hovering over you like a, a holding pattern. It's, a plan, it's, it's all waiting to land, but our runway's too full. It's full of worry, anxiety, work, misunderstanding of who you are. But once you realize that all you have to do is to make the space, once you realize that you can be a landing strip for more of Him, you clear that clutter fast. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That scripture comes on the heels of his parents frantically searching for him because he stayed in the temple and was talking with the religious scholars. They searched, they found him, they were angry. <laughs> and Jesus said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? It says that Mary pondered the things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Do you want to grow in wisdom and favor with God? Look for him. Hmm. Can you stand up on your feet? I'm going to pray for you. Hmm. You know, so many 
people are content with what feels true to them. So many of us are looking for a feeling. Even in our relationship and walk with God, we're chasing a feeling sometimes. In worship, it'll determine our level of engagement of how much we feel the presence of God. But I want to encourage you today that you have something better than feelings to base your life upon, and it is faith. You have faith that you can build your life upon. And sometimes when you press in and you worship and you seek the Lord, that that faith is the doorway to actually feeling the things that you are not. That faith is the key that opens the door and brings access for you to experience God in the way that you've always desired and dreamed. It's faith that gets you in, not feelings. If you want to grow in wisdom and favor, it's real simple. Obedience attracts favor. Obedience holds hands with wisdom. And if you will obey the Lord, you will thrive in all the way that matters. Obedience to his word unlocks the wisdom and favor of God in your life. There's so much here for you today as we close. Can I get our ministry teams to come and line up across the front? God wants to unlock accelerated growth of wisdom in you as you learn to fear him. And he wants to pour his favor into you like a fountain of life if you will search for him. Hmm. You've been invited to find God and receive his fountain of life. And I want to encourage you this morning. Your life can, can change forever today. You can want God like that. You can have a desire for his word. I know some of you are standing here today and I'm talking about the word and you say, Jay, you don't understand. I've done so many one-year Bibles and failed. It's embarrassing. I can't, I, I'm struggling to keep this focus, but I'm telling you, you can. You can hunger for God. Your appetite can change. He can release that in you. So today, what I wanted to invite you into is if you want to invite the favor and blessing of your God, favor of God, I can't talk. If you want to invite those things into your life, and I want you to lift up your hands. And I want you to turn your focus to him. And I want you to make a commitment in your heart. And, and don't agree with me when I pray this if you don't mean it. Because that's another contributor, is that when we pray prayers that we don't really mean, when we don't really want them, sometimes that, that just confirms our narrative that this isn't really working or prayer's not working. But you have to come with faith. Those who diligently seek God must first believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. You have to believe that He is. So if you want the favor and wisdom of God to increase in your life, I want to pray that He will reveal Himself to you, that He'll call you into a season of searching, that He'll give you an appetite for His Word, that He'll give you the tenacity to press, press through and break through all of the doubt and boundaries that have been in your way. But you've got to believe that He is, and you've got to want it. So if that's still you, put your hands up. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I ask that you would transform every heart in this room today. Father, I pray that you would give them a hunger and a desire to find you, that they wouldn't be satisfied with just what, what's in front of them or what they already know, that they wouldn't just lean back into deconstruction and think, I don't feel anything, so I'm going to live according to my feelings. But Lord, that you would teach them, show them, Lord, how to find you. God, you said that you love it when we search for you, that it's the delight of kings to seek out. 
Lord, I pray that you would awaken in our hearts at Bethel Cleveland a uncompromising hunger and desire to find you, to discover you, to find you in the word and to live lives that are in obedience to you, not just a, 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 in fire with passion, but passion paired with obedience, God. Passion paired with righteousness, God. Passion paired with people who know who you are, that in a, a culture that is tail spinning, God, we remain secure because our lives are not built on that, but built on the unchanging, uncompromising word of God. God. Lord, I pray that you would awaken hearts this morning. God, if there's been lukewarm Christianity, narcissistic Christianity, all of those things in any of us today, God, I pray that you would take a match, light it up. God, like chaff thrown into the wind, blow it away, God, so all that remains is pure hearts that want to know you. With every eye closed still, hands raised, if you want to give your heart to Jesus, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Because I'll tell you what, sometimes it can get scary. You hear a message about narcissistic Christianity, and a lot of boxes get checked, and you think, Lord, am I saved? <laughs> if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was risen from the dead, you will be saved. Pray with me, if that's you. Father, I invite you into my life. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for loving me enough to pay every price that you came for me. Father, I surrender my life. I surrender my heart to the hero who has rescued me. Lord, I invite you in. And I want you to know, Father, there is nothing in my heart or life that you can't have. There's nothing in me that is more important than, than knowing and having this connection with you. And I surrender. Teach me what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Amen. If you pray that prayer today, we have a uh, QR code that's going to pop up on the screen. Obviously, we want to pray with you up here. But um, if you can connect with us that way. We'd love to reach out and pray with you. Um, Bethel Cleveland, I bless you to go out of this place alight with the fire of God, that there'd be a fire lit up under you that you can't sit still anymore. You can't be silent, but that the word of God would powerfully be released in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sermon of the Week. You can help us reach others by investing today at BethelCleveland.com slash give.